0: Okay, good. Excellent. So that's good. Uh, with that, Michael, we are so thrilled to have you. Um, thank you for being here. And the Zoom floor is yours.
1: Excellent. So uh, thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, Hallie. Uh, thank you to Temple Beth Hillel Beth El for having me here tonight. And an extra special thank you to my old dear family friend, Sharon Stumacher gold for setting this up. Uh, and also to Bonnie and Mark Zimmerman, who I who I see here as well. Um, There is uh, there's obviously, uh, as the rabbi said, a lot going on in Israel, Um, we could we could do this for for 10 hours and probably not cover everything. Uh, But I will start with the judicial overhaul, since that is the issue that is in the the top of the headlines that I think is probably the most pressing. Um, But I am, of course, once we get to Q&A, happy to talk about anything or answer any questions people have uh, on really anything, anything under the sun. So let's let's start with judicial overhaul. <clears throat> this of course has uh, has been an issue in Israel since the Netanyahu government took power at the end of December after the fifth election in this uh, seemingly endless election cycle and the Netanyahu government and the coalition ran on uh, a number of issues. Judicial overhaul was one of the things they mentioned during the campaign um but if you were following the campaign closely You wouldn't have necessarily predicted that the judicial overhaul would have been the absolute first thing that the government would have turned to. Um, They did talk about it, as I said during the campaign, but there were other things that uh, that they that they seemed to emphasize more. Um, And yet, when the government took power uh, on day number six, Yariv Lavin, the justice minister, went on television, gave a press conference, and. He outlined the government's plans to, uh, in his words, reform the judiciary and make Israel's system more democratic than it is now. Uh, And there were five main components to that judicial overhaul proposal. I'm not going to go into all of them in depth because then we would be here all night. uh, But I will will outline them very briefly and then talk about the one that passed uh, a week and a half ago. So the, the five components of the government's judicial overhaul plan were as follows. First was a component that would change the way that judges are selected in Israel. Um, the way the judges are selected in Israel currently is that there is a judicial selection committee. It's comprised of nine people, three Supreme Court justices, two members of the Israel Bar Association, two ministers from the government, and two members of Knesset, one of whom traditionally comes from the coalition and one of whom traditionally comes from the opposition. So nine people, and it's it's spread across uh, these these four groups: uh, government, Knesset, Supreme Court, and Israel Bar Association. Um, for uh, and this judicial judicial selection committee populates all of the courts in Israel. The, there are three levels of courts. There is a fifteen Justice Supreme Court. There are district courts and there are magistrate courts. And every single judge on every one of these courts is chosen by the judicial selection committee. The government's position was that. Uh, it is non-democratic for judges to select the people who will be serving alongside them or who will replace them. And so that they had a number of different iterations, but all of them boiled down to the idea that they wanted the government as the elected, uh, elected branch of the people, they wanted the government to be able to select the judges without any interference from, from other branches. That was number one. Number two had to do with basic laws. Israel does not have a constitution. Instead, it has a system of 13 quasi-constitutional laws that are called basic laws. And these laws set out the way in which the system of government works, So, among other things. So there is a basic law on government. There's a basic law on the judiciary. There is a basic law on elections. The most recent basic law was passed in 2018. That law is the law of uh the setting forth israel as the nation state of the jewish people that one got uh got a lot of attention here in the united states when it was passed in 2018 so there are 13 of these and the second government the second proposal uh on the part of this government was to put those basic laws beyond the reach of the supreme court and say that there could be no judicial review over basic laws because they are meant to serve as a constitution We'll come back to that one in a minute because that's going to be very important in terms of understanding what happened a week and a half ago. Proposal number three had to do with all other kinds of legislation. So anything that is not one of the 13 basic laws or an amendment to a basic law. And there, what the government wanted to do was, A, make it harder for the Supreme Court to review laws passed by the Knesset. Um, The way they were going to do this was to make it so that any challenge to a Knesset law would have to be heard by the full 15 members of the Supreme Court. That's very unusual. Generally in Israel, things are heard in three justice panels, um, sometimes in larger panels, uh, but it's, it's exceedingly rare for anything to be heard by the full complement of 15 justices. So the government wanted to make it that if you have a challenge to a Knesset law, it has to be heard by the full complement of 15 justices. Second, at least 11 of those 15 would have to vote to strike it down. Uh, it would no longer be by majority vote. It had to be a supermajority. And third, even if all of that happened, the Knesset wanted to create an override mechanism where a majority of Knesset members could then vote to override a decision of the Supreme Court to strike down legislation, something that does not currently exist in Israel system. So that was proposal number three. Proposal number four uh, is the one that has been in the news because it passed a week and a half ago. And that has to do with something called the reasonableness standard. In Israel, the Supreme Court has over time acquired for itself the power to strike down government action that it deems extremely unreasonable. It is uh, similar for any, for any lawyers here, it's similar in uh, the US or the federal system to federal courts judging uh, judging agency action or administrative action as uh, arbitrary and capricious. So here courts can strike down something that is done by government agency agencies if it's arbitrary and capricious. Uh, the reasonableness standard in Israel operated, uh, doesn't operate anymore because it's now gone, but operated along the same way. Um, and it was actually used relatively recently when this government formed, Prime Minister Netanyahu appointed Aryeh Derry who is the head of the Shas Party, one of the two ultra-Orthodox parties in the coalition, as Interior Minister and as Health Minister. Um, Aryeh Derry has two convictions and one plea bargain uh, in his past for tax fraud and corruption. And as a result, the Israeli Supreme Court, after receiving a challenge to his appointment, said that it was extremely unreasonable for Aryeh Derry to serve as a cabinet minister, given his history of convictions and jail time for financial crimes. Um, so uh, the, the government's proposal was to make it so that going forward, the Supreme Court could not use the reasonableness standard to strike down either government actions or government appointments. And then number five was a proposal to change the way in which legal advisors to different ministries are appointed and uh, and the powers they have. So right now, um, every, every agency, every uh, department, in the Israeli government, every ministry rather um, has a has a legal advisor. Those legal advisors are appointed by the attorney general. They're not political appointees. Uh, the attorney general, by the way, is uh, is right now it's, it's a her, but the uh, attorney general is not himself or herself um, a, a political appointee. It's not the same as we have here, uh, like the attorney general in the United States. Um, there is a justice minister who's a political appointee, but the attorney general uh, is a is a civil servant. So these legal advisors are appointed by the attorney general and their advice has the force of law. So when a minister asks his or her legal advisor if an action that the minister wants to take or that the ministry wants to take is okay, the legal the legal advisor will say yes or no. And that has the force of law. So if the legal advisor says, sorry, you can't do it, then that's it. There's no recourse. That's that's the end. Uh, and so, what the government was proposing was a turning these advisors into political appointees, uh, and b making their legal opinions uh, non-binding. They they would be advice. They wouldn't they wouldn't be they wouldn't have the force of law. So those were the five elements. And um, the Israeli government and, and Justice Minister Yar- Yariv Levine uh, said that they were going to push these forward as quickly as possible. And the one that they started with was the very first one, the judicial selection committee. Uh, That is the one that was most important to them. And when they started to try to remake the Judicial Selection Committee, what happened was first protests. And uh, this is now the 31st consecutive week in which there have been protests against the judicial overhaul proposal. Um, It started out as protests and these protests grew and grew. The the first one was on a Saturday night back in January. It had about 30,000 people. Um, They grew to their height to routinely have 100,000 people in Tel Aviv alone. Um last week uh estimates were closer to 200,000 in Tel Aviv and uh, there are weeks where there have been uh, half a million people uh, out in, in protests across various cities. And so the the protests the protests got bigger and bigger. Uh in addition there started to be uh, not only economic warnings but strikes in various sectors. Uh there were um there were threats by reservists in the IDF and particularly in the Israeli Air Force that if these measures went through, they would stop serving. And so this all came to a head in March when the defense minister, Yoav Gallant, went on uh, went on TV, gave his own press conference on a Saturday night. And he announced that uh, in his view, given what the proposals were doing to IDF preparedness, he thought that the government should slow down, should, should stop, should negotiate with the opposition and, and pass something by consensus. Uh, the next day, Prime Minister Netanyahu announced that he was going to be firing Defense Minister Yoav Gallant, and that prompted the, the largest protest to date. Um, Prime Minister Netanyahu made this announcement at about 10, 10 o'clock at night. Uh, by 11 o'clock, you had close to half a million people in uh, in the streets and in Israeli cities and towns. Uh, and a day later, Prime Minister Netanyahu uh, went on TV and announced that uh, he was going to halt the process until after the Pesach recess. Because uh, the Knesset goes on recess over over, uh, over Pesach, and that uh, he was going to be accepting the uh, the offer of President Bougie Herzog to host negotiations at the president's residence uh, with the with the coalition and with the opposition and see if they could come to some sort of agreement. And so this process paused for a bit. Um, uh, I can I can go into I can go into to. What happened and why this broke down. It's it's complicated, but um it again had to do with the judicial selection committee. Basically, it was time to appoint the two members of Knesset, the, the two out of the nine who serve on the committee. Um, and for a variety, for a variety of reasons, uh Prime Minister Netanyahu tried to engineer a situation in which neither the coalition representative nor the opposition representative would would be voted on. Um, instead, it sort of backfired. The opposition representative got voted onto the committee. The coalition representative did not, which meant the committee was one person short. Uh, and at that point, that meant the committee could not be convened. And so the opposition leaders, Yair Lapid and Benny Gantz, announced that they were pulling out of the negotiations um, until the committee could be convened. And that gave an opening back to the government to restart the process. And they said, OK, well, if the opposition won't negotiate, then we're going we're gonna to start this up again. And this time, what they said was, we are going to start with the reasonableness law, not the judicial selection committee proposal, uh, because the reasonableness law was thought to be the the least controversial of these five these five different elements. Um, and what they decided to do was described by a lot of people as the salami method. If you if you go to protests now in Israel, you, you will see people holding up packages of sliced salami. Um, and the reason it was called the salami method was because instead of pushing everything through at once, the idea was um, you do it in thin slices, right? So you take you take the first, the thinnest slice, which is the reasonableness law, and you pass that. And then if that works, then you, you keep on going. So um, the government moved forward. And indeed, a week and a half ago, uh, the government ended up uh, successfully passing an amendment to the basic law on judiciary that says going forward, the neither the Supreme Court nor any other court in Israel can apply the reasonableness standard in judging government policy decisions, in judging government appointments, uh, or in judging um, the absence of government action. So for instance, uh, Justice Minister Yair Levine is still not convening the Judicial Selection Committee. In the past, the Supreme Court perhaps would have accepted a petition uh, forcing the Justice Minister to convene that committee, and the Supreme Court could have said in theory, it's extremely unreasonable to not convene the committee. That is no longer something that the Supreme Court has the power to do. Um, so this passed and uh, what we've seen since it passed are, you know, again, extremely large protests, larger than what we saw before. Um, we have seen some of the IDF reservists, particularly in the Air Force and in the cyber units and now a bit in the special forces units, uh, follow through on their threats to not show up for reserve duty. There are also uh, some rumors flying around that this is not confined to reservists, that um, career officers are also discussing the possibility of quitting quitting their jobs and and not showing up. Um, We've seen a number of warnings from financial institutions regarding uh, what may happen to Israel's credit rating in the future. Um, you know, we 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 might not want to gloat about that, given uh, given what happened to the U.S. credit downgrade just yesterday. Um, uh, banks who are you know saying that perhaps the investment climate in Israel is is, uh, is is unfavorable at the moment, given everything going on. So you know, we are seeing some of the warnings that were issued ahead of, ahead of time about what would happen if the government were to uh, were to pass any of these elements starting to come to fruition. Now, um, one of the the things that I uh, I said a few minutes ago, I'd be coming back to. Um, is that the reasonableness standard being eliminated wasn't passed as a regular law. It was passed as an amendment to basic law on the judiciary. And that makes all this a lot more complicated. So there are a couple of ways in which Israel is distinctive when it comes to its democracy. And these things make any discussion of judicial overhaul a bit more difficult and complicated than they, than they otherwise would be. The first part is, uh, as I as I mentioned before, Israel has no written constitution. That is exceedingly rare. There are only three democracies in the world that have no written constitution, aside from Israel. The other two are the United Kingdom and New Zealand. Um, I know absolutely nothing about New Zealand, so don't ask me about it. Uh, but I do know, you know, a fair a fair bit about the United Kingdom. Um, and in the United Kingdom, there is no written constitution, but there is, of course. Um, about eight centuries worth of the development of common law and constitutional traditions. You know, people generally date this back to Magna Carta, but there have basically been eight centuries of push and pull between, you know, what what was the crown and the nobles and then uh, became the crown and the parliament and, uh, you know, uh, has sort of evolved over time, figuring out in the absence of a constitution how you delineate different powers to different branches of government. In Israel, there was no constitution, and um, none of this was really worked out. And you know, while seventy-five years may seem a long time in, in the lifespan of, uh, of humans, uh, it's not a long time in, in the lifespan of, of the law or of history. And so, you know, Israel um, still is obviously a, a very young country, and they they punted these issues at the beginning. Uh, there was supposed to be a constitution. It's actually in Israel's Declaration of Independence. Uh, it says that Israel will be will be writing a constitution. Um, And the very first Knesset was actually not a Knesset. It was a constituent assembly that was elected as a constitutional convention. And after a couple of months, uh, David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister, said, you know what, this isn't working. Let's just call ourselves the Knesset and start making laws. Um, And that was how the first Knesset happened. Um, The first elections to an actual Knesset were the second elections, not the first elections. Um, And one of the uh, the strange hangovers from, from that period is that the committee in the Knesset that is... Shepherding the judicial overhaul through, led by Simcha Rotman, who is a member of Batsalos Motrich's Hatzionut Hadatit party (religious Zionism). Uh, Simcha Rotman is the chair of the Constitution, Law, and Justice Committee. Um, and you know, to strike people as strange that there's a committee in the Knesset called the Constitution, Law, and Justice Committee when Israel has no constitution. It's because when they folded the Constitutional Convention and decided to just turn themselves into a legislature, they preserved the con- the, the Constitutional Convention part by creating this committee. And they said, okay, the Constitutional Law and Justice Committee is going to write a constitution for us. And you know, here we are 75 years later, 75 years later and uh, there is still no constitution. So that is one way in which Israel is distinctive. And because the different powers of the different branches are not laid out in a foundational document, that makes um, that makes changing the system uh, a bit more complicated. <clears throat> the second thing that's important to know is that in Israel, they speak about the same three branches of government that we have here in the United States. So in the United States, we have the executive, which is the president and all the different agencies. We have the legislative, which is Congress. And we have the judicial branch, which uh, which are the federal courts. They speak in Israel along the same with the same framework they talk about executive, legislative, and judicial, but that's not actually accurate because in Israel, the same majority that controls the Knesset, and the Knesset is one hundred and twenty has 120 members, so you need 61 or more to control the Knesset, that same majority that controls the Knesset and forms a coalition and becomes the legislative majority also forms the government because the government are the ministers and deputy ministers who come from the Knesset. And so you have the same 61 or more, and in this, in this current government, it's 64 members of NASA, you have the same 61 or more majority controlling both the executive and the legislature. And the executive is drawn from the legislature, not, not the way it happens here, where you have people appointed to be secretary of state and defense and treasury and attorney general and everything else who are drawn from something other than the Congress. Um, ministers in Israel, with some exceptions, because you can actually be appointed as a minister and then resign your Knesset seat. But um uh, you know, essentially, ministers in Israel all come from the Knesset. So the legislative and the executive branches are really the same. It's a it's a two-branch system. It's executive and legislative collapsed into one, and then the judicial branch. And when you only have two branches of government, and even within that single executive legislative, unlike here, Israel has a unicameral legislature. So you don't have the added layer of having two houses of parliament you know we we see how that works here right now the house is controlled by republicans the senate is controlled by democrats and so you know in theory they serve as a check on each other in addition to serving as a check on the president that doesn't happen in israel there's only one chamber um there is no federal system so you don't have the added the added layer of federal versus state um and so in that scenario the judicial branch serves as the only check on the government there is no constitution there is no bill of rights there are no rights enumerated um, in some sort of foundational document there are a couple of basic laws that set some for, some rights for israelis but nothing nearly as robust as we have um, and so the judicial branch becomes the only the only check and you know this goes to explain why there are so many israelis in the streets you know it's it's a funny thing looking at it from afar that you have hundreds of thousands of Israelis who show up week after week after week to protest something having to do with the way judges will be selected or eliminating a standard that the Supreme Court uses to judge agency action. Um, you know, most of those protesters, I'm sure, as of a few weeks ago, um, wouldn't have been able to tell you what the reasonable reasonableness standard is. But what so many Israelis feel, and I've been now to the protests in Jerusalem for uh, Four times in the protest in Tel Aviv once. Um, and you know, so I, I've been there, I've seen the signs, I've listened to the speeches, I've talked, I've talked to folks who were there. You know, they feel in their bones, and again, this isn't these are not all Israelis, these are the ones who are coming out to protest. Um, and based on polls, they represent a majority of Israelis. Um, they feel in their bones as if, given all of these constraints uh, on the system, that if you change the makeup of how the judicial branch relates to the government. That something in Israel will be fundamentally broken. That Israeli democracy will be at risk. Um, we can we can talk about to what extent that's that's fair or not. But it's certainly what what Israelis are feeling. Um, so let's go back to the constitutional part for for a moment, and then uh, and and then I'm, I'm happy to take questions. Um, the government passed this reasonableness standard as an amendment to the Basic Law on the Judiciary, and that sets up uh, an even bigger potential crisis than might have otherwise been. Because the government's position is that these 13 basic laws are meant to serve as a constitution. And so they, therefore, should have a higher status. And their argument is that it would be unprecedented for, I should note that the Supreme Court has already accepted a petition to to hear a challenge to the reasonableness law, and that hearing is going to be in September. And so the government's position is that uh, because this is part of it's now part of a basic law. Um, The Supreme Court has never struck down a basic law. It has never struck down even part of a basic law. Um, It does hear challenges to basic laws all the time, particularly over the past few years, but it it has never struck any part of it down. And so the government's argument is that this would be unprecedented and it shouldn't be something that the Supreme Court has the power to do. If anybody uh, watched Prime Minister Netanyahu's interviews on U.s television networks uh last week or early this week, one of the things that he said was he compared it to the United States and he said uh, just like in the United States the Supreme Court can't strike down a constitutional amendment that shouldn't be allowed in Israel either now what the what the the opposition and the protesters in the streets would say to that is that, um, while these 13 basic laws are meant to serve as a quasi-constitution, they don't actually have any sort of higher threshold to be created or to be passed. So, in the United States, for instance, if we want to pass a constitutional amendment, that requires a very high barrier to to get over. Um, first, it has to be passed by 75% of state legislatures. Then, it has to be, you know, passed by a supermajority of both uh, both uh, chambers of Congress. Um, In Israel, if you want to create a new basic law or you want to amend an existing basic law, it just has to pass by a simple majority vote. And so um, last week, uh, the amendment to the basic law and judiciary that eliminated the reasonableness standard, uh, it didn't have to pass in an extra reading. Um, To pass Knesset legislation, it has to pass three times, what are called three readings. You don't need a fourth reading to pass a basic law. You don't have to pass it um, in two consecutive Knessets. Um, you don't have to pass it with a super majority. Last week it passed on a vote of 64 to nothing uh, because the opposition members all walked out before the vote in protest. Um, so it passed by you know, a very slim majority of the Knesset. Uh, and so what the opposition says is you can't say that these things are untouchable when there's no standard for what they can cover. A basic law can be passed on any subject under the sun. Um, there's no higher standard for for passing them, no no supermajority or anything like that. And so their argument is you know, if you're going to pass basic laws and treat them as quasi-constitutional, there should be some sort of uh, some sort of higher threshold um but because this was passed as an amendment to a basic law, there's going to be this hearing in September, and the Supreme Court is going to have to decide uh, whether it wants for the first time to strike down all or part of a basic law. and uh, the government, not only Prime Minister Netanyahu, but other ministers as well, uh, have been telegraphing uh, ahead of time. In the Prime Minister's case, he's been saying it explicitly, um, that they don't think there is any legitimate path for the Supreme Court to strike down part of the basic law. And that leaves an open question as to what will happen in September. Um, The the court may decide that it doesn't want to take this step of striking it down. Um, It may decide it wants to strike it down entirely. It may decide that it wants to narrow it. So, uh, the reasonableness standard, um, the reasonableness, reasonableness law, I should say, that was passed a week and a half ago um, was not as broad as it could have been, but it's pretty broad. Um, it applies not only to decisions of the full cabinet, it also applies to decisions made by individual ministers. Um, as I noted before, it applies to policy decisions, it, it applies to appointments, it applies to decisions not taken by the government or by individual ministers and so there is a world and and if we're, if we're going to be making predictions this is this is my prediction there's a world in which the supreme court says we're not going to strike it down entirely but we are going to narrow it and you know perhaps say um, it makes sense that we should not be able to judge actions taken by the entire you know by a vote of the whole cabinet but we should be able to judge actions taken by individual ministers Um, Or perhaps, you know, we shouldn't be able to strike down policy decisions, but we should be able to weigh in on appointments. There are different ways in which the court might decide to strike down part of this. Um, But whatever happens, there is then going to be a decision that the government has to make, which is, do you abide by the court's decision or not? And that, at the moment, uh, is an open question to which nobody has an answer. And um, if the court decides to strike down all or part of the law and the government decides not to abide by that decision, Israel is going to be plunged into uh, a crisis that nobody has any idea what it will look like on the other side or really how it gets resolved. Because uh, at that point, you're immediately in a scenario where um, the IDF chief of staff, for instance, is in a position where he might have to follow an order from the government, or he might have to follow a contradictory order from the Supreme Court. So you know, even though something like the reasonableness law doesn't seem like a huge deal, um, doesn't seem like the type of thing that can bring Israel's system crashing down, where this is headed, given the way in which it was passed and given all the lead up to it, um, I'm sad to say, does create a situation in which Israel may be plunged into this, this precise crisis uh, come, come September. Um one more thing I want to say, and then uh, and then I will I will take any questions uh, questions comments or anything else that people have. Um, there's a lot of uh, I would say um, speculation and in some cases confusion about why the government decided to embark on these judicial overhaul proposals, and there is not one answer to to the question. Um, what's important to understand is that the judicial overhaul proposals are not themselves an ends uh, an end they are they are a means to an end and the ends are different for different parties in the government for prime minister netanyahu he is still facing his criminal cases they are ongoing they've been ongoing now for uh, for 2 years uh they probably will take another year and a half or 2 years um but he is still uh on trial in in three separate criminal cases um and his priority uh i think it's it's fair fair to say um, is figuring out what he can do to get out from under these cases. Um there are different ways in which he can do it. um, but no matter what he chooses, whether it is passing a law that immunizes sitting prime ministers from being investigated or uh, or indicted or prosecuted, uh, something that that's known in Israel, as the French law because the French indeed have that have that law. um or firing the attorney general and appointing a new attorney general who might decide to drop the cases something that, by the way, uh, becomes um, possible after eliminating the reasonableness standard, but wouldn't have been possible a week and a half ago, Um, or letting his trials go through and hoping that uh, there are more favorable judges on the Supreme Court to hear his appeal. And that, of course, um, could be done through the government taking control of the Judicial Selection Committee. Whatever mechanism he wants to use, it's going to involve this judicial overhaul and and making sure that he's able to do what he what he needs to do to get out from his trials um and for for many folks in likud uh this is their motivation as well given that prime minister Netanyahu is the is the likud leader and and has been uh has been now for uh for uh, nearly two decades um for the ultra orthodox parties the Kharedim shas and utj much of this is about their uh, their ongoing struggle to uh, eliminate the draft for uh, for Haredim. Um, the override mechanism was important to them because they wanted to make it so that if the Knesset passed a law exempting them from the draft and the Supreme Court struck it down, they could override the Supreme Court. Uh, it seems that now their preferred, their preferred uh, pathway to this is passing a new basic law on Torah study that would um, make Torah study equivalent to national service, so that if you are a yeshiva student, you would be exempt from the draft and of course if you want to do that and pass that as a basic law you also have to make sure ahead of time that basic laws are not reviewable by the supreme court um and then lastly there there is uh the uh, what's called the, the the national right the religious right in israel uh in this government represented um by some of likud but primarily by Hatzia unitadtat religious zionism which is the party headed by batzalo smotrich and otsma Yehudi, jewish power headed by itamar ben-gvir for those parties and for smotrich in particular um the the point of judicial overhaul is to fundamentally upend Israel's system of administration in the West Bank. Um, But Salas Motrich has been on record for a long time that he would like for Israel to annex the West Bank, apply Israeli sovereignty to it, uh, and not give the Palestinians who are living there citizenship. One of the things that he wants to do in the interim is be able to build more settlements nearly anywhere in the West Bank. And that is impossible to do under the current Israeli Supreme Court configuration. I should note that the Israeli Supreme Court, um, you know, if you ask folks on the right, they will tell you that the Supreme Court has prevented the settlement enterprise from expanding. If you ask folks on the left, they will tell you that the Supreme Court has actually enabled settlements and Israel's occupation of the West Bank uh, to stay in place. Um, just yesterday, actually, uh, the Israeli Supreme Court issued a ruling uh, saying that Homesh which is one of the four settlements in the West Bank that was evacuated in 2005 as part of the uh, disengagement law. And uh, that law was repealed as, as it applies to the Northern West Bank a few months ago. Um, Khomech was built on private Palestinian land. Um, the, uh, the, folks who, the folks who run Khomech uh, have been running a, an illegal yeshiva there since 2005, uh, about two months ago. Uh, they moved it off of the private Palestinian land a few hundred yards away to a different plot of land. Um, It's still illegal because it hasn't gone through the planning process, but it's no longer on Palestinian private land. And the Supreme Court ruled yesterday um, that the new yeshiva um, can stay where it is uh, based on the challenge uh, brought by the Palestinians about it being on their land, because it's no longer on their land. They didn't rule as to whether it's Legal or not, um, but they did rule that the challenge of it being on private Palestinian land is no longer a problem. So, you know, just to give you a give you a sense, um, the Supreme Court is seen, you know, by some folks as as helping helping this project, and by some folks as as harming it. But if you are Batalis Motrich and you want to build settlements on private Palestinian land, um, that can't be done under the current uh, judiciary because the Supreme Court has ruled on multiple occasions that building on private Palestinian land is illegal. If you want to retroactively legalize illegal outposts, um, and there are there are 132 legal settlements in the West Bank, legal under Israeli law, and there are over 200 illegal outposts, and those are illegal under Israeli law. Uh, if you want to retroactively legalize them, and this government retroactively legalized nine of them back in February, if you want to retroactively legalize the rest, you can't do that uh, given current Supreme Court rulings. And so you have to do something about the current Supreme Court and its oversight and its makeup. So uh, for Smotrich and Hatzio Nutsalatid in particular, the judicial overhaul is really about the West Bank and, and Israel's future there and what happens to the Palestinians. So there are a lot of complex motivations uh, behind all of this, um, but this is kind of the, the the state of play at the moment. Um, and with that, uh, now I uh, as, now I finally am indeed ready to take any questions that people have
0: um hi me again michael uh thank you very very much um for your for your laying out of the facts and of your analysis it was thank you thank you uh and i want uh, i also want to thank everyone for giving the questions if you have more questions please uh send them in as we go through we'll try to get to as many as we can um i want to pick up um sort of where we left but not which is I've been reading in a number of different areas, and I, I just was going through um, Professor Netta Barak-Cohen um, wrote, uh, a, she's a, fa- a law faculty at Hebrew U, um, a, a very detailed sort of analysis of this, and she begins by laying out some of the um sort of justifiable concerns about the justice system judicial system as it currently is um and and she lays out a few of sort of some of them are human rights based some of them are some of the interpretation of those basic laws as you said and i wonder if you could sort of speak to so you know so so the status quo as it is which Groups on sort of all sides have had issues with for many many years. I want you laid out a little bit of it, but I wonder if you could speak to sort of what are the concerns or issues that the this this plan that's currently being enacted are, is attempting to address.
1: Great question. Uh, and and Netta's article, uh, she wrote a working paper a few months ago. Uh, it is indeed long, but it's it's very good. People uh, people should should read it. Um, so the government's the government's basic argument is. That the system right now is not as democratic as it should be. And their argument is that the Knesset is the institution that is elected by the people of Israel and is also accountable to voters um because it has it, it is selected through through democratic elections. And um the judiciary is not. The judiciary obviously is uh, is not elected. It is appointed. Um, in addition, what they say is that, not only is the judiciary appointed and therefore uh, not accountable to the voters and not accountable to the people, um, the judges themselves, through the judicial selection committee, have a hand in selecting uh, the members of their of their own uh, of their own clique, uh, of their own group. Um, and so, you know, the the kind of fundamental argument under underlying all of this for the government is um, you have a group of unelected people who, um, in part, get to decide. Uh, who are who the other members of this unelected group are going to be. and they have more power, forget about you know the the issue of accountability in elections. Um, even setting that aside, they ha- they are the more powerful branch. Um, if they if they make a decision, there is no mechanism for the Knesset to override it. Um, they they have unelected uh, legal advisors. Who, if they say something to a minister, then that's 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 the that's the rule of law. That's the, that has the force of law. Um, and so their argument is uh we want to make the system more democratic. We want to make it more accountable to the people. Um, we want it to be that the the people who are chosen or the politicians who are chosen to lead this country by the voters get to have the final say on say in things. And if people, if voters don't like what politicians do, then the answer is there's an election, you know, every it's supposed to be every four years, but it almost never goes the full four years. Um, you know, you have an election uh, every two, three or four years and you can elect somebody else. Um, and that's how democracy is supposed to work. Um, you know, So that's sort of the, the argument that, that underpins a lot of this. Um, another argument behind this, and, and this goes to the issue of judicial reform. And I should note that when you poll Israelis, two out of every three Israelis are supportive of judicial reform as a concept. there is a widespread sense that the way things work now is not fair um, and that comes from the fact that historically this actually isn't isn't the case um, really hasn't been the case for the last 15 years. There was an important reform that was made about 15 years ago um, where they they changed the threshold on the judicial selection committee to appoint Supreme Court justices. Um, it requires seven out of nine people on the committee. Uh, to appoint a justice. And what that means is that you can't appoint justices without consensus. And so since they have made that change, um, the Supreme Court tends to be far more diverse in terms of ideology, uh, in terms of right and left, in terms of secular versus religious, in terms of folks who live inside of Israel proper versus folks who live beyond the green line in the West Bank. Um, But the historical argument is that the judiciary is the province of the Ashkenazi secular um, central central coastal plain dwelling Israel, um, and that you have this self perpetuating elite um, that is not representative that is making decisions for everybody. Um, it is definitely still the case that the Supreme Court is overwhelmingly Ashkenazi, um, but it is you know now more diverse in other ways. But there there is this there is this critique out there, and you know there absolutely is something is something to it. Um, another critique is that. You know, and this stems from the fact that there is no constitution, over time, the Supreme Court has acquired more powers for itself than it used to have. So the Supreme Court did not always have the power to uh, of judicial review over legislation. Um, the Supreme Court did not always have the reasonableness standard. These are things that evolved over time. And so there are many Israelis who look at this and they say, well, okay, the Supreme Court has been doing these things, but who said you could do that? Who, who gave you that power? Um, and so there are lots of Israelis who think that things need to be rebalanced. And so, as I said, two out of every three Israelis are supportive of judicial reform broadly and want to see, they think the pendulum has swung too far in one direction, and they want to see some balance brought back to it. Um, The proposals that the government put on the table, um, however, do not have the support of majority of Israelis. Um, What you see is that uh, two out of three Israelis support judicial reform and nearly nearly as many Israelis... Are against this this specific judicial reform, and because what many folks think is that the government went too far in many of these things. So you know, for instance, um, if uh, you know if if you're going to have a, a Supreme Court override, for instance, most people think it should be a higher threshold than a simple majority, right? It should be 70 or 75 or even 80, whereas the government's proposal was a simple majority of of 61. Um, most people think that if you are going to put basic laws beyond the reach of the Supreme Court, then there should be some sort of standard for how you pass basic laws, but that was not an element of the government's plan. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of these things to many Israelis seem as if there is a, a kernel of a good idea, but that the government's version of these went too far.
0: Thank you very much um, I for, for your answer. I wanna turn to a question someone sent in, which is, um, the specific resistance in the military um and now is, so is that i guess the question is is that is there specific resistance from the military and what would that be or is it just that the resistance coming from the military is more worrisome and so it gets more play in the in the media so that's a that's a hard that's a hard question to
1: answer. Um, it's certainly for many Israelis and cert, and you know for Israel security and for Israeli governance um, more worrisome that it's coming from from the military. What you had in the beginning was within the military. Most of the objection um, centered in the air force and in the cyber units, um, and then it started to spread a little bit more to to special forces units. Those are units that um, traditionally come from, uh, you know, what, what's what's known as uh, as uh, Israel HaRishana, First Israel. Um, I hate these terms because because they're they're sort of um, by by definition uh, by definition derogatory. But many Israelis will talk about uh, you know First Israel and Second Israel, um, and the idea is that um, the 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 secular the secular Ashkenazim are, are First Israel and uh, and the majority of Israelis. Um, who are uh, of Mizrahi descent and more traditional uh, are, are Second Israel. Um, the Air Force and the cyber units and the special forces units tend to be uh, overly uh, overly represented among members of this you know quote unquote First Israel um, kind of folks from from Kibbutzim, um, folks from uh, folks from Tel Aviv, folks from kind of the the central plain, um, and uh, so it's not surprising that. When you look at um, the the demographics of Israelis who are who are most against the judicial overhaul, um, that is the demographic that shows up the most strongly. I should note it's not the only demographic. You know, you do see in polling of uh, religious Israelis and of Mizrahi Israelis and of right wing Israelis folks who are also opposed to the overhaul. Um, but it is definitely uh, you know centered among this group and those and 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 those groups tend to be overrepresented in those units of uh, of the military, the Air Force in particular um is a is is a problem in this regard um in terms of in terms of reservists because the air force relies more heavily on reservists than any other part of the IDF um 60% of the air force uh, are reservists um because when you have to you know when you spend years training not just pilots but navigators uh, and even you know uh, the people who sit in the operations room commanding these operations um, it takes years and years of intensive training and so you simply cannot rely on conscripts or even uh, or even career officers and so you know when you talk about uh, a revolt within the Air Force where people say we are not going to serve anymore and do reserve duty you know that isn't just taking a few people away that you can live without um, that threatens the ability of the Air Force to actually operate um, what we are starting to see now is this expand beyond uh, beyond those more elite units um, and down into other units as well um, uh, you know, there are now reservists in infantry units who, you know, who are, who are not showing up, um, even in kind of, uh, some of the, the infantry engineering units, um, doesn't seem to be very widespread yet in the, in the armored corps Um, but it is moving through, through the IDF. And so, you know, it's certainly, it's certainly worrisome when it comes to IDF preparedness. Um, and then, you know, there are also questions about leaving, leaving aside IDF preparedness. There are questions about, what it does to to Israeli security and the IDF going forward, even when Israel gets beyond this crisis, which which I hope it gets beyond sooner rather than later because the IDF um is is a it's a it's a conscript army, right? it's it's you know it's referred to oftentimes as the the People's Army. It's viewed not only as a, a melting pot and a place where people of all backgrounds come together and they work together. it's also viewed as, um, because it's drawn from all Israelis, except for for the most part, except for the Kharidim uh, and except for Israeli Arabs, um, it's also seen as uh creating this this ethos um where where it stands above stands above politics, stands above political and policy differences. And that has now um in many ways been shattered. And I think that there is an open question as to what that will do to the IDF going forward. Um are people going to be as willing to, you know, show up when they're 18 and, and give three years of their lives to the IDF, um, you know, without without complaint? Um are is there now going to be a phenomenon where uh, you know, so right now there are folks in different units who don't agree with what this government is doing, and so they're not showing up for reserve duty. Is there gonna be a phenomenon where? next time if there's a left of center government that uh, folks who are on the political right in the IDF decide that they're not going to show up for reserve duty because they don't agree with what the IDF is doing. I think there are a lot of concerns out there, um, very valid ones, about about what this means. And so I think that's that's what's elevating this issue. It isn't just about what it does to Israel's ability to tackle threats from Iran and Hezbollah tomorrow. Um, and that is indeed a problem, um, but I think it's also about what this means for the future of
0: the IDF and for the future of Israeli societal cohesion. Um, given what you have sort of said about, and friends, we're going to end soon. I have got uh, the questions are pouring in. I'm going to pull them together and uh, we've got a couple left. Um, given what you sort of laid out about the uh, Lack of checks and balances, lack of federal system, um, sort of the, it seems like the sort of two places where power is consolidated in the government. What's the hope of the protest movements? Like what is, what are they able to achieve um, by by taking to the streets in such numbers? And what's their goal?
1: The protest movement is certainly not monolithic,
0: um,
1: but as kind of a general, as a general characterization, um there is a gap between the protests, the protest movement leaders and the opposition, the opposition in the Knesset. Um, the opposition in the Knesset. For the most part, wants to get to some sort of consensus on this issue. Um, I mean, they certainly also want to replace the prime minister. They want to, you know, they they, they want to form a different government. Um, but in the short term, uh, you know, they, they are uh, they're more concerned about stopping the government from doing this unilaterally. Um, going back to negotiations at the president's residence and seeing if they can come to some sort of agreement that is acceptable to, you know, two-thirds or three-quarters of Israelis um that will involve some sort of judicial reform, and then you know, put that behind them and and keep and, and move on. Um, the protest leaders in particular are a lot more hardline. Uh you see this, you see this from what they're saying, but I, I've also spent spent time meeting with with many of them, and um, they they don't Say anything differently behind, behind closed doors. Um, they they think that this entire any any judicial reform proposed by this government is illegitimate, um, and they're not willing to accept any of it. So they don't they don't want to compromise. They don't want negotiations at the president's residence. They want this stopped entirely. Um, and then there definitely is a segment of the protesters that have moved beyond the issue of judicial overhaul. And for them, they they think that you know based on what has taken place so far. That this government has to be replaced at any cost, um, and I think for for many of them, they will be in the streets until this government falls. Um, and then, you know, there are lots of people who come out to the protests because they, they don't take the same absolute hard line. They don't like the government's proposals, um, and they don't like that it's being pushed through unilaterally. And so, you know, they tend to look a lot more like the Knesset opposition, uh, saying the way this is being done is illegitimate. Um, you know, let's let's figure out how 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 we can get a compromise. And it almost doesn't matter what that compromise is, as long as the government and the opposition can agree on something, then we will accept that, even if even if we are worried about the specifics of it. So um, it breaks it breaks down but the the protest leaders tend to be the most hardline when it comes to what they want.
0: So it's sort of to to try to recap it. You've answered like six of the extra questions in one there. Uh, so there are some for whom it's the way that this is being done there are some for whom it is the specific kind of reform that's being done and then others for whom this is emblematic of a deeper divide uh, and a deeper protest movement which um tracks with what we've seen what we read last question for you um again thank you very very much uh, for for being here with us tonight so the last question um is where can we go to learn more uh, I think as we want to stay apprised of events, um, other than I don't know if you're on Twitter or X or whatever, and we can follow you there, uh, or, um, or or more more stuff from you. Uh, but what would be for people who are sort of in the how did how did you put it the Israel 101 camp? I think if I got that right, um, and beyond, um, where can we go to learn more about this?
1: So first of all, I will uh, I will boost I will boost my own organization, Israel Policy Forum. Um, if you go to israelpolicyforum.org, what you will find there are uh, more more resources in English on everything having to do with Israel than I think exists anywhere else. I'm actually pretty confident of that. Um, we I, I write a weekly column every Thursday that covers all sorts of issues. We do webinars. We put out uh, three podcasts a month. We put out um, very long research reports. We put out shorter kind of shorter uh, summaries, explainers. Um, we have a judicial tracker uh, that keeps track of every single one of these pieces of legislation and where it is in the Knesset. Um, so uh, IsraelPolicyForum.org, and, and you'll find lots of stuff. Um, the other thing I would I would say is we are so fortunate to be living in a time where you can digest the news from Israel, either in English or in Hebrew online. Um, you know, I, I remember as a kid, you know, you could like find the Jerusalem Post here in the United States one, once a week, maybe at some newsstands. Um, now you can, you know, literally follow breaking news in Israel, um, in whichever language you, you like to, you like to consume it in, um, you know, minute by minute, uh, the same way that you can follow the news here. So I would urge people to, you know, pick, pick your, pick your favorite source. You know, there's, there's times of Israel, there's Ynet, there's J post, there's Haaretz, there's Israel Hayom. Um, there are all sorts of Israeli journalists on Twitter, many of whom, many of whom also tweet in English. If, if your Hebrew is not up to snuff, um, go and just. Read the news from Israel on your own firsthand, and and develop develop your own opinions and, and see what you think. Um, there is no shortage of information out there, and and we really live in a miraculous time where we can access it um, with with these tiny devices that we carry around in our pockets all day.
0: Thank you, uh, thank you very very much again. Um, I want to. Michael, I uh, wish you uh, well and have a Shabbat Shalom and we're looking for, and have a, have a nice week. It's been really wonderful to spend an hour with you talking and to hear from you. And uh, I look forward to reading your column on Thursday. Um, to uh, Also, Hallie and Ken, thank you for helping to organize this. Sharon uh, Stumacher-Gold, also thank you very much for helping to connect this. um, And the Zimmermans, it's nice to have you. So thank you guys for that. And we, uh, so for everyone joining, just again, um, other than Shabbat, which we'll see you uh, there tomorrow evening and sh- Saturday morning. There's uh, events coming up. There's uh, two concerts coming up in the next couple of weeks. There's a lot happening. And um, we will we will continue this conversation, um, this conversation of learning about Israel, of hearing um, from people who are analyzing and telling us what's going on. And so there will be more of these to come. And so look, look for your emails, look for our bulletins about um, the ways that we can learn more and get involved um, as well as in the greater Keila lower marion community so have a wonderful evening everyone um, thank you all for joining us tonight uh, and michael again thank you for your time
1: thank you all and, and shabbat shalom
0: be well everyone shabbat shalom see you in Shul.